Welcome to the 3v3 Podcast, a weekly look at the world of hockey with your hosts, Cassie, Pat, and Patrick. So I have both questions, a question from last week and a question for the week before that. I don't know if you want to tackle both or if we're just going to ignore that the question that Patrick asked before um, doesn't exist. <laughs> well, given that, I mean, we can, we'll end up on some tangents anyway. Why don't we just answer both? All right. And we'll pick up fresh next week. So which one do you want first, the older one or yours? Um, let, let's go with the older one because I think it ultimately be a little more interesting. Uh, maybe. So the older one is uh, what would you do to address the NHL schedule? This was piggybacking on the what would you do to fix preseason question. Yeah. Um, I would ultimately try and make it into a weekend league where pick fixed days in the weekend or, you know, later in the week, your Thursday or Friday, but keep games on those days and, you know, save maybe the first two days of the week for practice and travel, long distance travel, for example, uh, Teams traveling to opposite conferences, you know, for their East Coast swing or their West Coast swing or what have you. Um, just so you can kind of normalize a player's week. As much as I dislike the league, um, the NFL has a pretty standardized schedule. You kind of you get into a rhythm and a routine, and I, there is something to be said about that. Um, I think it's nice building up a little anticipation for certain games instead of going, okay, you've just played three and four, take a day off, and oh, by the way, you're just about to travel for a random Tuesday night game somewhere. Um, you know, as someone that attempts to watch 82 games live of a, one particular team, I've tried to, and that's just impossible. But having a little more um, regular schedule would be nice. So pretty much like the AHL. Yes, very much so. Uh, I find not only the AHL, but like junior hockey, college hockey, their schedules are much more palatable. And, you know, they all play different numbers of games throughout their season. But it's easy to forget when certain games in the NHL are. And then, you know, it's midway through it and it's a blowout one way or another and I have no interest turning it on at that point. I'll just watch highlights later. My only like comment about that because I think it's a good idea but my only comment about that is arena scheduling I think is oh, what dictates it's, a lot of that. I, I It's not feasible whatsoever. However, I'm curious you know, looking into the future, let's say 30 years from now, if I think public funding for facilities is going by the wayside, mm -hmm. but I could see groups in certain cities um, building multiple arenas. So I'll use Minnesota, for example, you know, uh, the NBA team plays in um, Minneapolis, at least I believe that to be correct. And then the hockey team plays in St. Paul. If you yeah, can I think kinda... it's flipped. Is I think it? it's the other way. The yeah, wild, but either way, in a 
major metropolitan area, there are two buildings. And so, you know, your, your, um, your concert and, and touring promoters, you can flip which building people go to and you're not overwhelming one air, one specific region with, you know, 300 to 330 dates or events a year, you can kind of spread it out and still profit in both. Yeah, I mean, if they've got the room and they've got the people willing to build those, then sure, that sounds yeah, good. And, and I say, looking into the distance, I'm hoping, you know, publicly funded buildings are, are a thing of the past. And honestly, I would expect um, basically large groups in the entertainment business like AEG or MSG to build more facilities for, you know, your 18 to 24,000 people, multi-sport and concert venues, instead of just the owners of a team. Um, I would probably, I would like to see the season being shorter, but I would also like to see it broken up in the middle um have like a uh every single year have like a break in june in january mm-hmm. so not just for um you know the all-star game and all of that but also for the olympics or any other international competition maybe they could schedule international competition during that month um so the you know the season still starts in October, still ends. I would like to see it end at the end of March, quite frankly. And then you have the month off in the middle where you can have your international play uh, as a standardized feature instead of having to quibble about and fight and argue about do the NHL get does the NHL shut down for players playing on their national team in the Olympics or not, blah, 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 maybe have World Cup on the off, you know, years when there isn't the Olympics, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and do what they do with, like, junior hockey, which is every other year it's in North America. So All Right. Now, I know, I don't know if all, uh, you know, top-tier European leagues do this, but I knew at least the Swiss League or NA1, um, they typically take a two-week break in early to mid-February, which would typically line up with where the Olympics might be played. Or, you know, that's post-Spangler Cup, it's pre-World Championships, um, but they still do it, and I just know that because I, I happened to make a trip over there, and I was really excited to go see a, a game in Geneva. And unfortunately, I picked the worst two weeks to travel to watch hockey. <laughs> but I was just thinking, you know, that would be really nice. Uh, it is kind of weird, but, you know, if an international competition – so there's going to be talk – I have a feeling if any sort of CBA extension is signed immediately after, we're going to hear about, you know, the 2021 World Cup. Mm-hmm. And basically they're going to cram a, a 16, a six team, not 16, six team tournament into probably a 10 day period and leave a little, you know, 
comfort room on the end of a two week schedule. And then they max it out at two weeks. Right. Which that would be lovely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it shortening the season would be good. Um, I think just generally for the overall physical health of the players, but also because as a, you know, someone who watches hockey on a regular basis, I tend to burn out right around mid January. I'm like, I need a break from this. I can't be watching this all the time. <laughs> and then, and then right before, you know, a couple of weeks before the trade deadline hits, that's when I start getting interested again. And, you know, and, and so it also like coincides nicely with, again, the Olympics and you wouldn't have this being a contentious issue all the time anymore. If you, because the, the problem is the break in the middle of the season where the owners aren't making money and their uh, players are out playing for national teams and could get hurt and all of that. <clears throat> but if it becomes a regular feature that there's a break in the middle of the season, then that kind of stops half of that argument anyway. Um, and if, you know, uh, there's a, an international tournament that isn't the Olympics being played every other year in North America, then, you know, maybe some of the owners could recoup some money that way. Um, but all the same, you know, it's that kind of, I don't know. I think it would really stop a lot of the like arguing about, do they plan the Olympics or not? Yeah. And I think one other way to kind of come, I think, I think reducing number of games is the only way to make it work. But one way to fill in dates and, you know, basically guarantee a certain uh, level of revenue is kind of treat the preseason uh, and create a international hockey tournament where clubs and not national teams play against other clubs from Europe, just like the Champions League. Yeah, where, that'd be awesome. Where there is one game a weekend uh, or, you know, one weekend a month where you you're not playing against you know, your Eastern Conference rival, you're just playing this random team from, let's see, the, the Czech League this week. But you Having bring a friendly. them over. Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's how you treat the NHL preseason instead of games against, you know, the AHL club. But I, I think the Philadelphia Flyers might not like that idea after this past week and a half. <laughs> Actually, they would be the reason why the NHL would be like, yeah, maybe we don't want to do that. <laughs> well, hey, it worked out for the Flyers because they certainly were ready for their opening, their mm -hmm. opener against the Chicago in in uh, the what is it, the Global Series, the Summit, some obscure name that doesn't make sense, but they yeah. have a logo for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and it also makes sense rather than to have. <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, NHL games in Europe or China or wherever, you know, where if you just do a bunch of friendlies, I mean, especially the East Coast teams could go over to Europe for a little bit and then come back um, during, the, during the regular season because, I mean, they're doing it now, um, you know. And that would, I think that would be a, a great idea instead of preseason. And that way, I mean, it's sort of like in a, in a 
random kind of way what the NCAA football, um, the BCS crowd does, where they pay teams from lower divisions to play um, NCAA teams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to pad their schedule. <laughs> Why not? Um but there's still the the lower division team actually still gets a benefit out of it because one they can see how they me- they measure up to the BCS level and it's usually only um, FCS now right that's the football conference series something anyway Champion- championships yeah. right football championship series um, instead of bowls championship series and so, so- they uh, um, I mean, they get a ton of money out of it. They get to, like, see where their team go, you know, how measures up to uh, a D1 single-A division team. And um, it's kind of a win-win for everybody in a way. But, you know, that would still be something similar with – I don't know that there would be such a disparity of of talent between the NHL and some European teams, but, you know – a lot of NHL people would probably think so. <laughs> oh, for sure. And, I mean, when they do these neutral site NHL games, they usually – the league buys or, you know, pays whichever team would make less revenue in a game. So in this case, Philly and Chicago were playing, and they paid Philly because Chicago rakes in more on a average home game than the Flyers at this point. That would be a nice way to maybe – boosts individual teams' revenues, uh, especially teams on the rise. Like if you throw one for Arizona and Florida, say next season when they're both should be playoff teams by next year for sure. But it'd be a nice way. All right, you're promoting some new stars, some new teams, and you're throwing them a bit of a bone. Right, except, you know, the NHL's model is – established teams with established stars that have big reputations worldwide already playing in Europe because God forbid we should have unknowns there. Nobody's going to show up. Yeah, because that's really going to be a problem because, you know, European fans aren't educated. I'm sure the Asian fans aren't educated because they're already seeking out information more and more everywhere. It's just, (laughs) I think in North America, we're just lazy about it. No, it's ego. It's egotistical. It's, it's egotistical. Well, the league had to expand for a reason because they couldn't play the same five or six teams against each other continuously because no one wanted to go to those games. Right. Well, it, yeah. it gets it, like even a weekend series in baseball or, or cop, you can only play the same opponent so much and then it loses its luster. Uh-oh. True. I mean, you know, that's that's the argument against the baseball season, right? It's like you play three games against a team and you're just kind of like, well, I mean, I don't want to watch all of them. Which one do I want to go to? <laughs> yeah. But the beauty of the baseball season is it's like half about the product yeah. itself. It, it's less of an entertainment product until you get into like the postseason. And it's more of a event. Yeah, it's social. I would say. Yes. It's a social event. It's not necessarily a sporting event. Yeah. Which <laughs> the NHL would not like either. 
We don't uh, want people talking to each other. We want people there to like watch the game. It's like so, so, so. Let me buzz something in your ear at nauseum for the entire two hours and forty-five minutes you're supposed to be in the arena, and not let leave any room for a breath or a pause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. There's nothing that like grates on me more than people saying real fans and suggesting that certain arenas are better to be in because people are more quote unquote knowledgeable. It's like, come on, get over yourself. (laughs) People are there. They're cheering you on. Maybe they don't always know the right time to cheer. Maybe they don't always have the right thing to cheer, but you know what? They paid to see What's going on? Give them some respect. And let's be honest, the, the quote-unquote knowledgeable fans, they are the first ones to yell, shoot, hit somebody, <laughs> and bang on the glass. I know. And they drive me crazy because I'm like, oh. you know, I, I'm sitting here and it, I, I, it wasn't, I don't even remember how the Boston game went. But there are a couple of game places I've been where full arena, packed, you know, quote unquote hockey town. You've got all these people who are like, there's a power play going and everyone's yelling shoot. And I'm like, the guy has no shot. Why are you yelling shoot? And they're the quote unquote knowledgeable hockey fans. They're the quote unquote real hockey fans. And I'm like, oh God, just shoot me now. (laughs) They're the ones that have been around it the most. It doesn't mean they know a thing about it. No. Because like, I consider myself semi-knowledgeable about the game as far as a fan is involved. Um, Typically, I'm pretty quiet during the games. I don't say anything because I'm too busy. One, just kind of blocking out the noise and just kind of staring at different spots on the ice. Whereas, like, uh, Saturday night, there was an away game for the local team, and some people I saw Thursday were like, oh, what are you going to do on Saturday? What are you, where, where are you going to watch the game? I was like, I'm watching from the from the uh, solitude of my own home so I can pay attention to the TV screen because mm-hmm. in public spaces, it's not always easy. No, I mean, it's fun to go to a bar and watch a game sometimes, but it's really that's really a social event. Yeah. You know, you're not it's, there to like cheer on the team. You're just there to like hang out with people who like the team like you do. <laughs> Yeah, or honestly, I I like doing it in the playoffs when I don't have a team in the race and you're just watching hockey with yeah. no with no rooting interest and it's just a little more fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing just grates on me because it's just it just screams a lack of respect. You know, it's like real fans. I'm like, who are you to determine who a real fan is? The same people that says that the game has been lacking respect for years. I know. It's just not (laughs) having no evidence that there was ever respect in the game. Oh, God, don't even get me started on the code. (laughs) All right. So with that said, um, what crazy, uh, wacky RFA stuff are we going to see next summer? Because we're we're, we're what, four days into this into the start of the new season? We've already seen uh, two more RFAs or uh, upcoming RFAs signed contracts in uh, Debrinkat and, oh, why is the Shen? second? Yes, Shen. Crazy. Yeah. 
crazy, so, crazy extensions. <laughs> yeah. So, so last summer was the year of the, uh, the player option by way of arbitration. Uh, in Shen's case, I think he was coming up on UFA. So they bought up a lot of years at a decent number, but they bought a lot of years, mm-hmm. which will be interesting. He's 28. Is that 28? Yeah. For eight years. Hmm. Hmm. But he, he also doesn't rely on anyone's skill. So his, I, I feel like his skill set may be able to, to um, the drop off the, the mountain may not be as bad as, say, other players like a, a Lucic or a Neil, like guys who didn't require speed and didn't have the fastest foot. They just got to the, to the right places. Now they're kind of, you, you know, your third and fourth liners now. Mm-hmm. And I heard the comparison. Well, Shen is your dollar store version of Patrice Bergeron, who's just Bergeron doesn't do anything exceptionally well. He just does everything smart. He knows where to be. He's well positioned. You know, he does everything really good. He just he doesn't does it, do anything yeah. really exceptionally well. If he were a video game, he'd have nothing, no ratings in the 90s. They're just kind of all in the mid to upper 80s. If that's how those games still work, because it's been a decade for me. <laughs> um, so but for the young guys, I've been I've been wondering, would any of them just go on a string of one year deals? It would depend on, so, I mean, the reason that they want term is for security, right? And no one can blame them for that. But the the problem with that is that, I'm saying that a lot, I'm sorry, um, is that they uh, don't quite grasp the fact that one, um, they're guaranteed contracts. And two, if you have a long enough deal and you get injured or you, in the case of Luke Shen, you happen to hit your decline a lot quicker than expected, then you become an anchor. You become a boat anchor and your contract does anyway. And so you're not going to stay with the team that you signed with anyway. I don't know. I kind of think that the, on the one hand, I understand why they want it, but on the other hand, I'm kind of of the opinion that um, you might be better off doing two or three year deals simply because you have better mobility to get you know better options for yourself, um, and you're not suddenly put in the position of we like you as a person, but your contract really sucks. <laughs> So we're not sure we want you here anymore because that's an awful place to be in. You know, it's like to be on a team where you, you love your, you love your teammates, you get along with your coach. And then all of a sudden the GM comes along and he's like, yeah, we're going to have to move you. Could you waive your no trade clause? You know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I guess, and the, the guess the thing with the term is that you're gear, you get everything front loaded and you get a lot more money in the end than if you do two three year deals in succession. But it also comes down to 
do you want to be put in that position where you're suddenly not wanted, not because of your ability or because you're not good in the room, but because of your contract? Right. Um, and I don't know if that's a case of the players are just short-sighted who sign those things or they're idealistic and don't think that's going to happen to them um, or what, or they're, or they're, uh, I keep on saying coach trainer, their agent um, is like pushing for that because it's a good deal for the agent. I'm not quite sure, but um but yeah, I mean, that's always my first thought when I see those things is, so you're okay with like year three or four realizing that your contract's a boat anchor and people are going to try to get rid of you? Or conversely, <laughs> you, you're you Nathan McKinnon and grossly underpaid compared to the rest of the league. Yes, you have your security and, you know, he signed a contract before everything was so front loaded with bonuses where you can, you know, from a financial standpoint... I would presume maximize your return by getting things invested uh, earlier. But I wonder if like Kevin LeBlanc from the Sharks will be a kind of test case going next year. Like if, you know, he has a, you know, decent year and everyone thinks he has a nunk, uh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, other contract just sitting in a drawer while, you know, this is presumably Joe Thornton's last season. They've got one or two other guys that'll be UFA, and that just kind of clears the way for his raise going forward. Plus, unless arbitration year, um, how quickly you uh, earn the ability to go to arbitration, I see no reason why a person coming out of ELC, like the, other than the guaranteed money, like you suggested, why wouldn't you just do a one-year deal? And then if, you know, it's, if, if you're just kind of going to be bridged anyway, if you have a real good year, great. You're, you'll, you could either end up, you know, signing two one-year deals that ends up being the exact same as, as a two or three-year deal financially, or, you know, you bet on yourself, things get cleared roster-wise, and you could kind of blow up. Yeah, it, it, I think a lot of people believe that one-year deals are risky, which I don't quite understand because if they're confident enough to play, to do a, an, a six or eight year deal thinking at, at the age of 28 and thinking that, Oh yeah, I'll be able to play at a high level up until this contract is over. Then why the heck can't they sit there and think, you know, I could play at a high level for this one year and then bank on that and then go for another one-year deal. And, you know, yeah, I might have an off year here or there, but I'll still be doing well enough over time to be able to, like, make up for that. You know, it, it just, it's the same mentality, but you're of being confident in your ability and your longevity, but... For some reason, it's seen as, as a bigger risk to do a one deal, one year deal in succession, like Joe Thornton has, than it ha than it is to do a big long term thing. And I will say, Joe Thornton is my contract idol. For after he had one of the old CBA, like pre two thousand five contracts, where the entry level deal was like six years, 
and the salary escalated quite a bit towards the end. But then he just signed three-year deals, three-year deals, three-year deals till he reached, you know, his post uh, 35 uh, age where everything is guaranteed. Everything ends up on a team's cap. And then it's just been one-year deals the past few years. But in NHL history, he has probably grossed one of the top, I, I think he's number two behind Yager in, in salary. Um over that period of time, and I think if you broke it down by year, his AAV would be one or two. So he's doing well for himself. But I also thought, as you're just describing, you know, the risk for the player. Once upon a time, people on expiring deals were trade chips. But it seems more and more you want to trade someone with term or someone willing to sign a new deal almost immediately. At least that's what we saw this summer. So I wonder if having a one-year deal offers a player protection, one, to stay in the market in which they're signing, if that's important to them. But then, two, you're ultimately more flexible to fit into a team's plan. The Kevin LeBlanc example is he did them a huge favor because he he allowed them essentially to sign Joe Thornton. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that was necessary or not, remains to be seen, but he helped his general manager out big time. And somewhere down the road, he might be helping him out because uh, I think San Jose is going to need another goalie this year. Probably, yes. So, I mean, we're, we've seen probably 60 to 70 some odd games so far this this opening week. And Everything's kind of been, oh, this is interesting. Oh, here are some new guys that are doing well in new locations. Here are some guys doing poorly. But my gosh, if there's one thing to overreact to right now, it's the state of San Jose's goaltending. (laughs) Because that looks like a boat anchor. Oh, God. Yeah, you know, it, it amazes me how... A position that is so crucial on every single team, every single team, no matter where you go, no matter what level, and yet so many people have no idea what good goaltending looks like. (laughs) It's just, it's baffling to me because it's like, I I I get the whole not getting, understanding defenseman thing. It drives me crazy, but I understand that, but not understanding what a good goaltender looks like. I really just have no idea how GMs even like survive in this league because of that. Well, they're just one. They're just, it's like coaching. It's now that we're seeing the advent of a full-time goalie coach and multiple levels of an organization. It's just like, you just kind of expected the guy to show up and do everything. And when the game was slower, when you had your Waz, Hashiks, Broders, yeah, it was kind of easy. When uh, when the Quebec Major Junior League actually churned out NHL caliber goalies, like, you know, they were uh, cars, uh, you know, General Motors or something. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, it was easy because QMJHL uh, was the goalie like factory for the mm-hmm. NHL for a very long time. Well, not very long time, but for they had a for good the stretch 90s. Of, 
Yeah. And and, and then in the late '90s, early 2000s, there were, I think, the dub. You know, I think they brought us a little bit of star power. I wouldn't say it was anywhere close to the uh, success rate that the Q had in that time period, but. Honestly, I mean, European goalie development has flourished. And then the, the CHL introduced that silly rule where, you know, you can, there were no import goalies and it backfired because they weren't developing players themselves. And sure enough, more and more European goalies were, were drafted and playing in pro leagues. And I think ended up going to basically joining uh, North American AHL and NHL rosters as like one, two, or three on depth chart much faster than young Canadian kids. It's not a priority. No. It's like everybody in Canada seems to think goal scoring is a priority. And that's why a lot of their, their talent development has severely dropped um, as compared to other places. Because like the U.S. right now is churning out better defensemen. Europe is churning out better goaltending. Canada's still got the goal scorers, but they're but no longer... I, I, I think that the separation is getting very, very thin between Canada and the rest of the world. Yes, definitely. And it has um, everything to do with their development. It has, I mean, they still have the players like the people going into the system... But they're not, there's an arrogance there where they're just assuming, well, we're Canadian, so of course they're going to be great. And yeah. that's backfiring on them. Absolutely. And it's, I hear the term a lot, but every team wants to find their goaltender of the future, their goaltender of the future. And it makes me cringe <laughs> because even look at Carey Price, who I will still say, Probably through at least part of this year, I still think he's the best goaltender in the game. Okay. His numbers do not reflect that. Well, I think that's because the team in front of him doesn't reflect that. It is, but everyone is searching for that person instead of how, you know, how do you get good NHL defensemen? How, how are U.S. programs doing it? Well, some are playing one or two years of, of NCA where they're doing physical development because there's more off ice work than on ice work, you know, European leagues, you're seeing 19 year olds who have played at least a year or two, at least first round draft picks playing pro European level hockey. And then they have kind of a year adjustment and learning their, their gap control on a smaller ice surface. But there's no adjustment for those goaltenders. You know, certain organizations are starting to let guys marinate in the in the um, in the AHL longer, letting them play at least one to two full seasons as a starter, and then I think transition to a 50-50 split. But then it comes down to the head coaches not they're they're building their overcomplicated and convoluted systems that leaves certain goalie skill sets out to dry. It's not the team in front of you is going to do X. You just stop the puck. It's no, let's, if, if Connor McDavid is your center, you're, you build talent around them. So you get a bunch of fast wingers that can keep up with him. Albeit, you know, Edmonton's failing. 
if you're you're in Nashville or Columbus or maybe Carolina now, you build a smart group of forwards around a great defensive core that can get the puck up fast. But is any coach thinking about, all right, how do these systems affect our goalie? Like, if we are a grinding team, if we like to work the puck along the boards and stay in the offensive zone a long time, how many odd man situations are you going to create the other way? Yeah, I mean, well, here's here's the problem overall, is that the reason that development is so poor with so many NHL teams is there's the demand to win now or else you're going to lose your job. And so they're trying to, like, patch up a leaky wall with, you know, bringing up guys from the AHL and saying, okay, you need to perform at a high level right now or else I lose my job, you know? And, or they buy into the reputation, the junior, co- junior hockey reputation, not realizing that may not translate into the NHL, you know? Uh, there's a lot of, like... Uh, mental gymnastics that seems to go on in coaches' heads in the NHL and some general managers where they're looking at 18-year-olds as their saviors and it's just like, do you not understand that um, you're doing this to yourself and you're screwing this kid over in the process? For sure. And also, practices are never geared towards, like, goalies. No. Well, and they're not... It, it doesn't prepare them for games either. Practices aren't even geared for like people coming into the league, you know, from anywhere. If they're if they're a 26 year old coming from Europe for the first time, if it's an 18 year old coming from junior hockey, if it's a 22 year old coming from college, you know, they're just thrown in and just said, "All right, do what you need to do," without any like explanation expect you know setting expectations without you know i mean even at a job regular desk job you come into a job your new boss says okay you know we're going to give you three months to catch up to what's going on you have your trial period you get training to do what you're supposed to do, even if you, you've you been doing the same sort of work for like 10 years. And you get eased into the position so that you, and the expectation is that you have these three months to kind of figure things out. In the NHL, it's just plug and play. It's like, you're here, you're a body, you go there, you need to do this at a high level, do it now. No explanation, no easing them in, no, um, these are your expectations, no giving them a month or two to like find their way. It's if you don't do it the way I want you to do it right now, then you're going to be sitting in the press box. Yep. And that's completely unrealistic. And as we have recycled coaches and that mindset and mentality is just kind of permeated and permeated over the last 20 years snowballed yep so you know then you have teams like montreal where you're going well why aren't we doing well (laughs) uh gosh i don't know why aren't you doing well (laughs) 
I won't say that until last season, where I think they way overperformed, perhaps, but they started to finally do smart thinking things, like you know, play young players not in a quasi position to succeed, where they're not gonna hang them out to dry. Let's say like Buffalo is done with Jack Eichel to some extent, like Edmonton definitely is done with Connor McDavid. And while they have the talent and the ability to play up to some expectations, they're in no win situations. Whereas Montreal, they kind of kept their expectations low. They brought it, they've cycled in another group of young players instead of doing the big market team overpays a bunch of guys and, you know, sticks with a core group for a long time to kind of keep the band together. Um, or instead, they're cycling out guys that were on long-term contracts, even guys that they paid a decent price to acquire. And I'm thinking Andrew Shaw. They brought him in from Chicago. They shipped him back out to Chicago. And based on what I saw from them in person this week, uh, Montreal is going to be a powerhouse like Toronto kind of wants to be. Um, and I think they might be able to do it for longer, you know. They'll have a good six or seven year window opening up in, you know, the next few years. Maybe, but um, there's all kinds of rumors that they want to trade Druin. Uh, the defense is a little shaky. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and so they're already on the verge of like, um, maybe we might have to dismantle this team. <laughs> yeah. But they have outside of Shea Weber, they don't they didn't do what Pittsburgh did and brought in some guys everyone knew were not equipped to handle modern day NHL as defenders. They they didn't have the the Lucic or the James Neal contract. So they're they're kind of waiting their time and, and getting out of whatever garbage they have left on their roster. And I think they're gonna ultimately be in better shape long term then maybe if if Bergevin can like keep his finger off the trigger and, and pulling silly trades just because it's not going exactly as he wants to right now i agree yeah which has been somewhat refreshing in in june the past two years where his team has acquired so many draft picks and even next year i think they have two three eight in the first four rounds you know, those are spread out and what have you. But other than they they could have easily done some, you know, large monster deal. They could have been the one to get JT Miller out of Tampa. They could have been the one to get, you know, they could be going after Alex Petrangelo, who's an upcoming UFA. But they haven't done anything like that. They, they've gotten, you know, whatever veteran players on cheap one-year deals. Um. Yeah, their defense is. <laughs> it's interesting. Don't tell them. Don't tell them that. <laughs> but, but, you know, they've got you know, bottom four guys that they're not hurting, but they're not helping. But they they will have room for you know Victor Mete and Cal Fleury to be on this roster for a long time. And then, you know, they have a number of, well, prospects. 
no one that's really worth a darn. But some of them are playing with Carl Alsner in the AHL now. So, oh. <laughs> so you're trying to be so upbeat and now, and it just brings you down as you go yeah. along. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimate. I mean, if you look at things on paper, you can be optimistic, but then yeah. you start taking the 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 coach and the GM into consideration. And then maybe it's not quite so optimistic anymore. I'm, I'm less concerned about the coach. I am way more concerned about the GM who is. He's a. Uh, unpredictable. He is unpredictable. I, I, he is the opposite of. Shevel uh, day off in, in Winnipeg where he was overly aggressive at first. And now he's calmed for now. See, when you, you sit there and say, you know, these guys could be there for a good long time. In the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, but this is Bergevin. <laughs> yeah, they could be there if it was a different GM for a good long time. <laughs> yeah. Is there, well, there are seasons when Bergevin is a question and there are seasons when Bergevin is the answer. So it's kind of... Speaking of questions and answers, did you hear about the report that the Ottawa Senators were going to be up for sale? I did not, and I'm not at all surprised by that. So there was an individual by the name of Catherine Kraft who happened to be in Ottawa and took a picture from inside. Is it still Canadian Tire Center or are they Scotiabank something or are they Rogers something yet? Um, isn't that, isn't that the way arena deals work? They all kind of follow each other in Canada. Anyway, this person by the name of Robert Kraft took it or Robert Kraft. I just spoiled it. Um, Catherine (laughs) Kraft took an Instagram photo and had just captioned with like a three emoji image or a caption. It it had money in the, the, uh, the money and handshakes and like arms in the air celebrating were the three emojis. And everyone took off with the idea that, oh, Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots, was going to buy the Ottawa Senators. Hmm. So that was kind of a weird story, I think, uh, Friday going into yesterday. And, of course, you know, people from the Patriots denied it. And sure enough, as we were recording, this little gem came out. No wonder that the NHL was so surprised that yesterday's social media posts that uh, purported to connect Robert Kraft to the Ottawa Senators. A New England Patriots spokesman says Kraft doesn't even have a granddaughter by the name of Catherine. So the most NHL thing in the world to take off a story idea without there actually being a real connection. <laughs> yep. That sounds about uh, right. That, w- that, that was the nice bit of levity the last two days. Uh because we're, we're in fun hockey season where it's just silly and we're getting crazy 6-5 games for the next week and a half before, mm-hmm. you know, the coaches get their claws into the rosters and we get our 2-1 games on a more regular basis. Um, so that was a bit of fun little news. <laughs> they, things are so bad for Ottawa fans and I feel so sorry for them that 
they can't even have hopes on a false rumor that, that that they can string on to for a year that the team will be sold. Now it was squashed in less than 24 hours. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still, honestly, I'm still expecting Ottawa to relocate to Quebec city. I really am. I'm, I'm just waiting for that one to happen. Yeah, and I think I, Gary Bettman will let it happen too. Cause Ottawa has had, you know, for its entire the the length of its entire existence in the modern era, they have never had really a great crowd at their arena. Yeah. You know, and and Batman wants to relocate a team to Quebec City and not give them an expansion team. Because they can't really afford to do that. Right. The expansion fees are like so exorbitant that he doesn't want to like beggar the the ownership group before they even start. So, um, I mean, right? And and they, you would keep a team in Canada. You would. They already have an arena. They, which is already in use. They have an ownership group that wants to have an NHL team. You know, I mean, it just fits a little too well. For it to not happen, but this is the NHL, so that means it probably won't. Um, but I think that, that that would probably be the best way to go is to just, you know, I don't want to, I mean, I feel bad for Ottawa fans, but on the other hand, it's like, well, at least it's a team that still doesn't like Montreal. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because Quebec, Quebec fans, when they, you know, when they had the Nordique, it, that was their rival. That's the team they hated was the Canadiens. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of think that that would be, for all involved, I think that would probably be the most painless way to go. Yeah, I mean, it makes too much logistical sense. It wouldn't cause realignment. It wouldn't. It, it would still be, I guess it'll be seven and Oh my gosh, I'm trying to do math on the fly. Uh, seven and twenty-five, so twenty-five North American franchises once Seattle um, starts play, and then seven in Canada, and then it opens up the door one day for a team to go back to Ottawa. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons I guess this Robert Kraft rumor kind of took off because apparently um, he has been known to look into making real estate purchases around where sports venues would be. So he may have had some sort of business reason to have something going on in Ottawa. But for a man that, you know, has never shown interest in anything but one sports franchise, it was it never made logistical sense. Uh, um, no, and I mean, I always feel a little weird when like a, a an owner from a team in an area that has an established team in the league that they're rumored to be buying another team from, you know, it's like, uh, but the Bruins are right here. Why would you want to buy? I mean, I know you're not going to be able to buy the Bruins, but you're probably a Bruins fan if you live in the area or at least support the Bruins because you're a Boston area team. Well, you know, I think it might be easier to convince six individuals than that old one that was the owner for 
for quite some time. But no, the Boston, the Bruins won't be sold. And it's just like, you know, so many financial people in New York that get involved as minority owners because you're never going to buy the Rangers. You know, (laughs) I think for the time being, the Islanders are set. The Devils are set. You know, Flyers are going nowhere. All these major metro area teams where owners would have that interest and drive, they're just not getting franchises there. If Toronto hasn't been able to figure out how to get a second team in that market yet, it's you're better off looking elsewhere. Well, (laughs) part of that issue, though, is the Leafs themselves. They don't want a second team. Yeah, but at some point, the whole Rogers and Bell marriage, it, it's working, but couldn't they individually increase revenue by having separate teams? I don't, I don't know. It'll probably. Yeah, I mean, happen. it makes a lot of sense. It makes a huge amount of sense to put a second team in the Toronto metro area because, you know, so many seats in Air Canada Center are owned, are corporate. And a lot of fans don't get to actually go to Leafs games unless they go to Buffalo. Um, And so just to like have a second team in the area where your average person can actually buy tickets and actually go, they would be an instant success. I mean, just for no other reason. So they have another arena to go watch the Leafs play. (laughs) When they come visiting. <laughs> so what you're really saying is because Gary Bettman dislikes uh, Quebec so much that he, you know, lets the Hurricanes flourish and lets the Panthers stay and the Coyotes survive. Um, the Senators are actually now moving into Toronto and are going to be roommates <laughs> with the Leafs. No, that will never happen because the Leafs don't want to lose their corner on the market. Uh, and that's why they're the they're never going to allow. So, you know, there's this unspoken or unwritten rule where each team has a 50 mile territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have the final say in whatever happens within a 50 mile radius of their city uh, in terms of other NHL teams coming in or out. Um, and so that's always been the rumor. I don't know if it's entirely true, but assuming it's true, the Leafs are the ones that are like, saying, no, we're not going to have a second team here. We like it just the way it is. Thank you. And that's why Hamilton was always the most likely, because I think it was the furthest, and they would actually draw from a different different spots in southern Ontario than, say, someone in the Mississauga, which is, like, southwest, or Markham, which is north of Toronto proper, would. Right. Well, I mean, everyone would make the commute anyway. It doesn't matter exactly where in southern ontario anybody would you know you'd put a second team because you know the alternatives are to go to ottawa buffalo detroit and because they can't get tickets in toronto and i mean even when the team sucked for years you still couldn't get tickets in toronto oh they were selling out games the building was just half empty yeah because it was all corporate and so um so to put a second team in that area makes a whole lot of sense from a fan perspective and from the NHL perspective, but the Leafs don't want it. They're the ones that are sitting there saying, no, we don't want that. Why would we want that? 
we like it just the way it is. Everybody comes to us. Everybody buys our merchandise. You know, why would we want to like allow competition? So what you're really saying is a Ottawa senators are going to move to Cleveland, Ohio, and someone's going to invest in an express ferry across Lake Erie. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, what's some more absurd rumors? Okay, maybe we should finish on that. What is the most absurd relocation and or ownership change theory you have for solving the future of the Ottawa Senators? Follow us on Twitter at 3B3Podcast. This has been the 3B3Podcast, sponsored by Nobody.